The reading this evening is taken from the book of James, chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 17. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And what's the result of that? Well, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? No, verse 20, faith without deeds is useless. Should we just pray? Thank you, Father, that you have given us warnings so as to prevent us being deceived. We pray that you would write these warnings in our minds and on our hearts so that we would heed them. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone, uh, whether you're here or, again, if you're online. As I said a moment ago, 
That's pretty clear. And yet, I can imagine a number of you saying, well, yes, but, but hang on a moment. Week after week, we hear that Jesus died for our sins so that we might be forgiven by God. Uh, we hear that we may be accepted by God through faith in Jesus. Uh, one jo- uh, three, uh, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this quite independent from what we do. A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law says Paul. So what's going on? What is James saying? Is he contradicting Paul and the other apostles? It's a good question, one we need to address. But to give you a quick preview, don't worry. No, James is not contradicting Paul and the other apostles. But what he is doing is to warn us against having a shallow understanding of what faith comprises. He he wants us to make sure that our faith is real. As we look at this, it's worth starting by going back and remembering what James has already said about faith in his letter. In the first half of chapter 1, he tells us that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And then, in verse 12, he says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, who is it who will receive the crown of of life? Well, it's those whose faith has been tested, isn't it? And then in verse 21, He says that we should humbly accept the word planted in us, which can save us. Who is it who is saved? Well, again, it's the person who accepts God's word. And we come into chapter 2, verse 5. God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Who inherits the kingdom? Well, it's those chosen by God to be rich in faith. Do you get it? Faith, faith, faith. James is actually saying the same thing as Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith. And we need to remember that as we come to this passage this evening. So let's come to it. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Well, the implied answer is, no, it can't. But but why is that? Verse 15. Suppose a brother and sister, a brother or a sister, is without clothes and daily food. By the way, as verses 1 and 14 indicate, when James refers to a brother or a sister, he's referring to fellow Christians. So he's saying, suppose a fellow Christian, perhaps in the church, is without clothes or food, 
Um, uh, what are you going to do? Verse 16. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? It's useless, isn't it? Let, let's, let's be clear. Very characteristically, James is talking about how we treat fellow Christians. He's saying we need to do something, and what's more, mere words don't cut it. In fact, words can be pious nothings that hide a lack of true empathy. They're mere hypocrisy. And and that's really important. We need to remember that. But as it happens, it's not James's main point. Because you see, James is using that as an important situation, which is an analogy to what he's talking about. What he's saying is, in just the same way as mere pious expressions of goodwill don't help the physical needs of anyone, so mere pious expressions of faith don't meet our spiritual needs. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, he is not saying that we have faith, but we need to add action. We need to add deeds to it. Now, what he's saying is that if uh, our faith is not manifested in action, then it is dead. It is not real. It doesn't exist. Yes, I know what some of you are thinking about. You see, the problem with Monty Python's dead parrot was not that it was a parrot, but in addition to being a parrot, it needed to fly around a bit and say a few words. Now, the fact is that the fact it didn't say a few words and didn't fly around demonstrated that it was not a parrot. It was an ex-parrot. It was dead. And the same thing is true of our faith. If it doesn't manifest itself uh, in, in action. Now, James immediately recognises that some people may have a few objections to this. So, so take a look at verse 19. Uh, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Uh, it's not 100% clear precisely what is being imagined there, but it seems that James is imagining someone who's basically saying, look, somebody has faith, somebody has deeds. We all serve God in different ways, and that's fine, isn't it? And that sounds very holy, but James peremptorily dismisses it. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Note again, James doesn't dispute that faith is the key thing. But he says, if you say you have faith, but there's nothing to show for it, How are you going to prove your faith exists? You may say, well, yes, but what's that got to do with it? Why do I need to prove my faith exists? Isn't my faith a matter between me and God? God doesn't need external evidence to know the reality of my faith. 
And with some important qualifications, that's true. But it's also totally irrelevant. Go back to verse 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So if there is no action, no manifestation of faith, we may safely conclude there is no faith there. In the light of that, we need to ask ourselves, what's the connection between faith and and action? After all, they sound like two different things, don't they? And in order to address that question, we need to ask ourselves, what is true faith? You see, I think there's a grave danger that we will confuse mere intellectual assent for faith. I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. I've got faith. I'm all right. Oh, no, you're not. You see, even the demons believe that. Demons are completely orthodox theologians, and they shudder. And if we do not manifest our faith in action, then we too should shudder. So what is true saving faith? I can do no better than go back to what Jesus said, unsurprisingly. This is what he said right at the beginning of his ministry. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is that in Jesus, God has come in salvation to those who repent and believe. They may enter, become part of his eternal kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus said has become near. And repenting and believing has many aspects. If you listen to what Jesus says, what the apostles say, you'll realize that it means recognizing that God calls for our allegiance and obedience and that we fail to give it. It means expressing genuine sorrow and regret for that and committing ourselves to give that allegiance and that obedience in the future. And it means putting our faith in Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. When the Bible refers to uh, us having faith or believing in Jesus, it's using a shorthand for that kind of commitment. Uh, When I was very much younger, I heard a number of Christian speakers say, frequently quite expressly, that we may become Christians by accepting Jesus as our saviour and only later accept him as our Lord. Let's be clear, that does not come from the New Testament. Paul said that, that a Christian is one who confesses that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus himself made it clear that if we do not 
that made it clear that that confession is something more than mere lip service. It requires real commitment. Uh, take a look at Matthew uh, 7.21 afterwards, if you doubt that. Now, true faith involves that. And hence, self-evidently, true faith will manifest itself in action, won't it? But if you need any more persuasion, James gives us two examples. Uh, Now, I'm not going to have a chance to to deal with the second one, that relating to Rahab the prostitute, but we can talk about it afterwards if anyone wants to do so. That is, provided you're prepared to stand in the rain outside. But uh, anyway, for the moment, we will simply focus on Abraham. Verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. I suspect most of you know the story of Abraham, but for those who uh, don't or would like to recall it uh, with a little more care, God promised Abraham a son. And he promised that his descendants through that son, son would be without count, numerous. And he fulfilled his promise in Isaac. And then, years later, he asked that Abraham sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham, by his actions, demonstrated that he was prepared to do that. Indeed, he got to the very moment when he was going to strike the blow before God stopped him. And this despite the fact that he doubtless hadn't got a clue how this squared with what God had promised earlier. You see, Abraham's actions were, as James puts it here, working together with his faith. Indeed, James says something even more important. He says that Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did. Now, now James isn't saying there that in some, in some sense, James's faith had previously been defect, sorry, Abraham's faith had previously been defective and it suddenly became complete. No, there are no degrees of saving faith. What he's saying is that his faith was realized. It was realized in his actions. Note again that what mattered was Abraham's faith. The actions flowed from the faith, but the faith came first. And James makes that clear by quoting Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The important thing to note there is that that relates to a period 30 years before God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And as Paul explains in the book of Romans... It indicates that Abraham was counted as righteous before God at that time, ages before he ever uh, was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. That's what Paul points out. But James points out that that faith 
was manifest in what Abraham did. You see, he says that Genesis 15 was fulfilled in what Abraham did. You may at first find that slightly surprising. You may say, well, uh, uh, in what sense was it fulfilled? It's not a predictive prophecy, so it can't have been fulfilled by what was predicted coming to pass. No, that's not what he means. When he talks about fulfilling this, he means that it was shown to be right. Abraham's faith was demonstrated. That's why in Genesis 22, directly after us being told that uh, Isaac, uh, Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac and God then stopped him, we're told that the angel of the Lord said this, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You see, what mattered was that Abraham feared God that he had faith in God, and that worked itself out in his actions. And so it is that looking at the fundamentals, Paul can say that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Yeah, that's what God declared in the case of Abraham, 30 years before the sacrifice of Isaac. But James can say, looking at the necessary consequences of having that faith, you see, verse 24, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. They go together. So far in this sermon, I focused more or less entirely on making sure that we all understand what James uh, is saying. That's obviously important. Indeed, it's essential if we're going to put it into practice. But to say the least, to say the very least, it would be unfortunate in relation to a passage like this if we were all to go home and think, great, I've now got a much better grasp of the relationship between faith on the one hand and works on the other. Excellent. I can now watch television. Would be a bit unfortunate, that, wouldn't it? A passage like this. We need to ask ourselves, how should we respond to what James is saying? Well, I would suggest the first thing we need to do, and this is whether we've been a Christian one day or all our lives, we need to examine ourselves. I've said before that I recognize that that sounds terribly heavy, but it is what the Bible urges us to do. We need to make sure, to use James's own words from chapter 1, that we are doers of God's word, not hearers only. And a good place to start, I would have thought at this time in examining ourselves, is to go back and reread chapter 1 and, uh, and, and chapter 2, and ask, how am I doing in relation to the things that James is talking about? Or, in some cases, how am I not doing? Are you, am I, in control of your or my tongue? Am I showing favoritism? Am I really caring for my fellow Christians in the church? We need to ask all of that kind of thing. 
But, but there's one point that's really important to bear in mind. James is not saying that if when we examine ourselves, we discover that there are some things that we should have done that we haven't done, or some things that we have done that we shouldn't have done, that if we're in that position, we are not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Indeed, the closer we get to God, the more likely we are to become aware of our own wrongdoing. And if we do find that, then what we need to do is recognize that God is always merciful if we turn to him in repentance and faith. So we should confess, we should commit ourselves to seek to do better in the future, and we should move on. That's what we should all be doing. Now, what James is talking about is something more fundamental. Suppose we examine ourselves and we realize that we are not habitually seeking to obey God, that we are not manifesting the fruit of faith in our lives. Then we need to recognize something altogether more serious. We need to recognize that our profession of faith is actually demonstrated to be hollow. And we really are in a perilous position. In some ways, we're in a worse position than someone who says, I don't believe in God, because we think we're okay. But James tells us we're not. And if, if you are in that position, well, first of all, I, I do suggest it would be a good idea to have a chat with someone about it. But, but the key thing is to take action. And it's very important to take the right action. There is a real danger that we may think, oh my goodness, I've got to screw myself up and really do better on this deeds thing in the future. Really do better in committing to obey God. Now, to be clear, all of us need to do a bit more of that resolve and commitment to obey God. That much is obvious. But... There's a real danger if that's all there is to it, then you will end up treating the symptom, not the cause. If if you discover that you're just not habitually trying to follow God, that you're not showing the fruit of faith in your life, then the thing you need, first of all, to address is to sort out your relationship with God. You need to turn back to God in genuine repentance and faith in Jesus. And only once you've done that can you seek to obey God and show the fruit of that faith in practice. And then finally, and for all of us, whatever we discover, we need to remember that there is the bad news that we can't do this on our own, coupled with the good news that we don't need to do it on our own. You see, If you have turned to God in genuine faith in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is working in your life, transforming you. Indeed, ultimately, that's the real reason why true faith always manifests itself in action. Because the Holy Spirit ensures that that happens. 
And so uh, whether we are in the position of realizing that our faith has not been true and doing something about it, or whether we are satisfied that, yes, we do have true faith, but we need constantly to turn back to God and obey him, we should always pray that the Lord would send the Holy Spirit to assist us in relation to that. So in summary, how should we respond? Well, I'd suggest we should do four things. First of all, we should examine ourselves. Second, according to what we find, we should repent and turn back to Jesus in faith. Third, we should seek the Holy Spirit's help. And then fourth, we should seek habitually to manifest the fruit of faith in our lives, in deeds, effectively. This is what... Paul said when writing to the Philippians, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Amen.